The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 24. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, he will, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our series this morning on biblical conflict resolution, and we began two weeks ago by taking a look at where all conflict starts, the heart. James chapter 4, verse 1, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
James tells us that conflict arises between us because of a conflict that's going on within us. The internal conflict is not between us and others. It's between us and God. We think we know better than God what we need at any given moment, and we get angry when we don't get it. So biblical conflict resolution does not begin horizontally between you and the other person. It begins vertically. It begins within each of us in order to resolve our dispute with God, whatever that internal dispute is at that given moment when this horizontal conflict rises up. Last week, we saw the hope that God gives us whenever we will acknowledge that conflict that's going on inside of us. It's the very hope of the gospel. We saw how when we look at a passage of Scripture, in that case in Colossians, and you know, we immediately go to all the commands of Scripture and miss the gospel that is behind the Scripture. And when we think about conflict resolution and the command to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to, to forgive as we've been forgiven, and all the things that are laid out in Colossians and throughout the whole Bible, we often miss the grace that is behind those commands that is the very power for obeying those commands. The gospel is the key to conflict resolution because the gospel is the power for conflict resolution. That's why, the, to quote the book that our growth groups are studying right now, the more we know and live in the gospel and all its implications, the more we will be transformed into Christ-like peacemakers. There's a direct correlation between the gospel taking root in our hearts as a result of our vertical dealings with God and our ability to be peacemakers in the image of Christ at the horizontal level wherever we find ourselves in conflict with other people. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because conflict resolution, biblical conflict resolution opens up a window into the very heart of the gospel. It provides a window into the reconciliation that God has won, has purchased at great cost to himself between those who were his enemies, which is you and me, and himself. Whenever biblical conflict resolution takes place, it is a picture of of the gospel, of what God has done to rescue people who were once his enemies. The whole drama of redemption can be summed up in that one word, reconciliation. Jesus died to reconcile sinners to God. And when redeemed sinners reconcile with one another, we prove that we're children of God, that the two go hand in hand. And as people now at peace with God... We are equipped and empowered by the gospel to live as people of peace in a world gone mad. And we live in a world gone mad. And this is a great opportunity to be salt and light in our culture by doing conflict resolution well, biblically, not just with one another, but having that be the way in which we engage with people in the world. Through conflict resolution, biblical conflict resolution, we get a foretaste of what relationships will be like in heaven. You realize that, right? Whenever we live at peace with one another, we get a little picture of what's coming. 
Something infinitely greater than anything we can experience on earth in every way imaginable, including relationships with other people. You know, Isaiah tells us that on that day, swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It's this beautiful picture of peace. And that's a peace that we will experience, not just in terms of peace with God that we have now, but peace with one another as well. And of course, through biblical conflict resolution, we give a glimpse of the peaceable kingdom of God to a world that's perpetually at war. This morning, we turn to a story in the Bible that reveals a great deal about, how, about the hard choices that we need to make when it comes to um, resolving conflict. You know, when we find ourselves in the, in the heat of conflict, which David was in the heat of conflict with Saul, when we find ourselves in the heat of conflict with people, we have hard choices that we need to make about how we will engage if we will engage how we will respond when we are confronted or hurt. The conflict between Saul and David takes up two-thirds of 1 Samuel. Right? It's, it's huge. David, as you know, wrote a great many of the Psalms. Nine of the Psalms that David wrote have his conflict with Saul as the backdrop to those Psalms And their conflict reaches a flashpoint at key points throughout 1 Samuel, and this is definitely one of them. I mean, you felt the, the tension, you know, the stakes were high even as, as we read it and as you read it in God's Word. You know, it, it could have gone one way or the other for both Saul or David. Things could have ended poorly for Saul if David had listened to his, you know, friend's advice and taken Saul's life in the cave. It could have ended poorly for David if Saul had decided to say to his troops, there he is, instead of, you know, really more or less killing him with flattery. We'll get into Saul's peace faking in a little bit. Maybe you see yourself in David as you read this passage. Maybe not so much David standing courageously outside the cave, you know, holding up the corner of the robe, saying, Saul, I come in peace. Maybe you see yourself more like David in the cave. You're asking the question, do I confront or do I retreat even further back in and hide? Maybe you see yourself in Saul as you listen to this passage. You recognize that you are perpetually on the attack when it comes to this person with whom you are in conflict. Maybe you recognize that time and again, even though you're not seeking to literally kill this person, you'll kill them with kindness, even though your heart is still raging within you. Either way, this story helps us to begin thinking about our horizontal response to conflict. If it starts vertically between us and God, dealing with what's going on in our hearts, of course, it must move into the horizontal realm. And this passage helps us to begin thinking about how we go about doing that. Of course, the, the vertical and the horizontal are intimately related. The vertical dictates the horizontal. Your peace with God through Christ or lack thereof will determine whether you have peace in the midst of this conflict in which you find ourselves, yourself. So it's our response to conflict and what's going on in the heart that leads to that response, which will be our focus 
this morning. So three things to consider from the text. First, the slippery slope of conflict. The slippery slope of conflict. Second, a courageous response to conflict. And then third, the heart that stays on top of conflict. So the slippery slope of conflict, a courageous response to conflict, and then the heart that stays on top of conflict. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this, this portion of your word. Thank you for preserving David's life. We thank you, Lord, for um, the, the lessons that we learn here and the things that we need to take away from this in terms of how we engage in conflict with other people. Lord, would you help us to not seek so much to be like David, but to trust in the God in whom David trusted to look to you as the one who is the key, who is our only hope in the midst of conflict, that we might have peace no matter what's going on around us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you're going to have a, up on the screen here real quick the, uh, the slippery slope of conflict. This is in the book that all the growth groups are going through right now, the Resolving Everyday Conflict book. If you aren't in a growth group, I'd encourage you to get in one. You can still buy the book. It's available for $5. It'll be out out in the lobby or over in the lodge, you can pick one of those up. So this, I want to hit this real quick, and then we're going to jump into how we see this playing out in the text in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So this throw, you know, this shows three possible responses to conflict. There's the escape responses over there to the left, which we could call peace faking. There's the you know, attack responses over there to the left, which could be thought of as peace-breaking. And then there's the peacemaking responses there at the top of the slope. And, um, you know, escape responses you typically see. The first one that's mentioned there is denial. So, right? Are you, are you mad at me, Mark? No. Everything's fine. Ask my wife how many times she's heard that. You know, nothing's fine. Everything's great. You know, cold shoulder, harsh words, but no, I'm not mad at you. Fake smiles, flattery, but in your heart, no desire to deal with whatever's going on between the two of you. The second escape response there at the far end of the slope is, you know, to run away. Quit the job. Leave the church. End the friendship. Divorce the spouse. Don't talk to the person. Avoid them at all costs. Or stay in, this happens especially in, in a marriage, stay in the marriage, but find other ways to escape. Now, sometimes escape is the right response. When you're in, or if you find yourself in an abusive situation, step one for any kind of peacemaking in that situation is to escape the danger that you are in. To get safe, to get out, get safe, and get help. And get wisdom concerning how to move forward. However, generally speaking, outside of those kinds of very tragic and yet real scenarios, outside of those, generally speaking, our escape responses happen because we don't want to have to deal with the issue at hand. We don't have to deal with the person. We don't want to have that expose what's going on in our hearts in that moment. I'm going to deny the vertical by denying the horizontal. I'm going to escape having to deal with God by escape having to, having to deal with you. As the uh, Resolving Everyday Conflict book defines it, peace faking is caring more about the appearance of peace 
than the reality of peace. And then you jump over to you know, the right side of the, of the slope there, and these are the attack or the peace-breaking responses. First, you know, move. First, a, a response is to blame or to blame shift. That was Adam's response in the garden. This woman that you gave me gave me the fruit, and I ate it. It's her fault. Blame shifting. We blame people to their face, or we blame people behind their back. That often leads to gossip. <clears throat> Either way, it is an attack. It's a, it's a blame. The, the second and more extreme, as you see there at the end, attack response is to assault. To try to force people to give in, to manipulate the situation, either to physically assault or to verbally, more often, assault, or you know, try to hurt them financially in some way. These are all ways in which you know, we see this play out on the, the stage. Assault is peace-breaking. You're more intent on winning the conflict than on preserving the relationship. And for some of us, that's exactly how we do conflict. Win at all costs. Think about the slippery slope and the polarization that exists in our world. Where, where do you see peace-faking in our culture? If you're unwilling to get your own views challenged, whether you know, your political views, your views about the vaccine, you know, anything, if you're unwilling to have those views challenged, if you only kind of silo yourself off with like-minded people, if you live within this echo chamber where everybody's reinforcing their own opinions, then you are peace-faking in the sense that you are pretending your position is unassailable. You've got nothing to learn from anyone. There's no conflict here. People just need to think the way I think and everything will be fine. You also see peace breaking in our culture. Cancel culture is peace breaking. I'm going to silence my opponent. And, you know, left and right both play the cancel culture game. And, of course, social media just blows it all up. So you've got peace faking responses. You've got peace breaking responses. And then we have at the top of the slope, these peace making responses. And the rest of the book is going to break out these four G's that you find at the top of the slope. And we're going to see how David actually employs the four G's long before the peacemaking material came out. Right? The four G's. First, go higher. Ask yourself, how can I focus on God in the midst of this situation? How can I bring glory to God through my response to this conflict? That'll be the topic of next week's sermon. Then, get real. Get real about yourself. How do I get the log out of my own eye? How can I own my part of the problem? Third, Gently engage. Ask yourself, how can I help the other person see their part in the conflict? How can I help them? You know, Matthew 7, continuing on. How can I help get the speck out of their eye, having dealt with the log in my own eye? And then fourth, get together for lasting solutions. How can I grant forgiveness? How can I receive forgiveness uh, wherever I've needed to confess my wrong? How can we move together in a way that resolves whatever the conflict is for the glory of God? So again, the next four sermons are going to deal with those four Gs, and uh, the growth groups will be engaging in them. So uh, again, if, if you've not yet plugged into a growth group, if you've not yet picked up the book, 
this is where the rubber meets the road. So even though I want you to go back and read the first two chapters for sure, this is a great time to plug in and start to deal with the very practical aspect of doing biblical conflict resolution. Now, we can shut that off now. It's fascinating to see the four G's in David's response to Saul. So let's come back to the text. And let me give you the background, kind of summarize 1 Samuel up to chapter 24. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, who was the prophet, the prophet spoke for God. The people of Israel said to Samuel, we want a king. And, you know, Samuel, I'm sure, was thinking, you have a king. God is your king. But they said, we want a king like all the other nations have. And so Samuel went to God, not a little bit frustrated, and God said to Samuel, they've rejected me as king. Go ahead and give them what they want. Give them Saul. And so Saul was anointed king. Saul, as is clear from chapter 24, was not a good king. Saul's heart was all bound up with whatever Saul felt was in Saul's best interest. Saul was also a people pleaser. The opinion of the people mattered more to him than the opinion of God. Saul should have listened to Samuel because Samuel spoke for God. Instead, time and again, Saul listened to the people in order to determine what was going to be best for Saul. By his own admission, Saul said he listened to the opinion of the people, and this got Saul in trouble. Whenever God confronted Saul through Samuel, who do you think Saul blamed? The people. They're the ones who wanted me to do this. They're the ones who actually did it. Saul would never take responsibility for his own actions before God. So finally, God told Samuel, I have rejected Saul as king. Saul could not accept this verdict on God's part. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel's telling Saul this, and Saul, you know, Samuel turns away to leave, and Saul grabs a hold of Samuel's robe, and it tears, and Samuel says to Saul, in the same way that you grabbed my robe and tore it, so too the kingdom will be torn from you and given to someone who is better than you. And that someone was David. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God told Samuel to anoint David as king over Israel. David is Jesse's son. Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says, you know, bring out your sons. And, you know, David was of such low consequence as the last born that Jesse decided it can't be David. Let's just leave him out in the field, you know, wrestling with lions out there trying to protect the sheep. Surely it's one of these other sons of mine. And, you know, of course, you know the story. Samuel says, isn't there another one? David comes in and Samuel anoints David king. The problem was Saul wasn't willing to let go of the throne. And to David's credit, David wasn't willing to take it from him. Until God removed Saul. In David's eyes, Saul remained king, 
even though he knew that he would one day be king. And that brings us up, although there's other conflicts we could have touched on leading up to this, this brings us up to chapter 24. So look again at the text. Saul has returned from following the Philistines. He's told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So, you know, Saul's off fighting this battle, and yet he still has scouts that are out looking for David. Saul just can't let this go. And the scouts come back, and they tell Saul, we know exactly where he is. He's in the region, the wilderness of En Gedi. He's on the, at the front or on the east side of the wild goat's rocks. Just follow the sheep pathways. You will get there. You'll find him. And so that's what Saul does. He takes 3,000 of the best soldiers in all of Israel with him to go pursue this man who is on the run, and he gets to the region, you know, the wilderness of Engedi, and he, he, he gets to the east side of the wild goat's rocks, and, he, you know, he has to do what we all have to do eventually, go to the bathroom. And so he steps into the cave, and there were a ton of caves in that region. And he just so happened to step into the cave where David and his men were hiding. Probably took off his robe and set it down so he could, you know, do his business. And David and his friends look and they're like, that's Saul. And of course, they're saying to David, now's your chance. In fact, they say something that God never said to David. Look down at verse 4. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Nowhere in the Bible, except for here. God never said that to David. But they're saying, like, hey, God, surely this is God's will. Look at Saul. I mean, he could not be more vulnerable. Surely this is the moment in which you are to assert your right to the throne. And David wouldn't do it. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now you think, what's the big deal? Well, the robe is a big deal. The robe symbolized Saul's authority as king. And even though David, you know, was determined not to kill Saul, as his friends had said, he also kind of wanted to stick it to Saul a little bit. I mean, the whole torn robe thing, you know, would have hit home a little bit for Saul. And David decided, I'm just going to take a corner of his robe. But David was immediately convicted concerning this. And from that moment forward, by God's grace, he was able to stay on top of the slope when it comes to his conflict with Saul. He could have been a peace faker in that moment. He could have retreated deeper into the cave. Or, as we'll see, when he came out of the cave and confronted Saul, it could have been all kind words, you know, all kinds of flowery language about Saul instead of actually confronting him as he did outside the cave in a very courageous way. He also could have been a peace breaker. He could have killed Saul. But instead, he pursued peace. And in so doing, he modeled these four Gs for us. First, first G, go higher. David focused on God and his glory, not on what Saul was doing to him, not on how unjust the situation was. David, in verse 6, 
of 1 Samuel chapter 24 said, This is the Lord's anointed. I will not put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Again, God has said through Samuel that David would be king, but David is going to wait until God removes Saul. He will trust the Lord to be the judge between him and Saul. You see that later in the text, verses 12 through 15, when David says, I, God will avenge me before you. That's just a way of saying that God will see to what is just between us. He trusts God to deal with the verdict when it comes to the conflict. David makes that determination in his heart. God will see to this. I'm going to see God and his glory in the midst of this and trust the outcome to God. David employed the first G. Get higher. Second, get real. This is what David does in the cave. He's, he's convicted. He recognizes that even in taking a, a corner of the robe, he was kind of undercutting Saul in a way, trying to, you know, ultimately prove a point. But who really has authority here? Who really will have that kingdom slash robe for himself? Third, gently engage. When, when David comes out of the cave, he says to Saul, verse 8, my lord the king. And then he addresses him later as my father. He says to him, you can see I'm not trying to commit treason against you. Again, gently engaging with the other person. But he also says it's wrong for you to try to kill me and God will judge between us. So he's not peace faking, he's gently engaging with Saul. And then fourth, you know, the fourth G is get together for reasonable solution. Now, you know, basically it was David saying to Saul, how about don't kill me? That seems like a reasonable solution. Or how about don't listen to those advisors? That, that's an interesting approach that David took. He could have come out of the cave and said, Saul, why are you trying to kill me? I know what's going on in your heart, you wicked king who won't let go of power. Instead, he says, why don't you stop listening to those advisors who are telling you, that, are telling you I'm trying to kill you? So go high, get real, gently engage, get together for reasonable solutions. Courageous move on David's part to come out of the cave and pursue peace with Saul the way that he did. How did he do it? It's third point. What enables your heart to stay on top of conflict, right? To stay on top of the slippery slope and not slide down, to engage in the four G's and not flip over into peace breaking or peace faking because you know in your heart right now your default is in one of those directions. And if you're not sure, your spouse can tell you. Your default is in one of those directions, either to peace faking or to peace breaking, Neither one of those lead to anything ultimately good at the horizontal level, and neither one of those deal with what's going on vertically in your heart between you and God. So what will enable you to stay on top of conflict? What enabled David to keep from slipping? And actually, we know from two of the Psalms that David wrote that were written at this time. Psalm 63 and Psalm 57. Now, we use Psalm 57 for the call to worship. You read those words earlier. Psalm 63 and Psalm 57. Psalm 63, the superscription at the top of the psalm, which, by the way, 
The superscription is part of the inspired word of God. You know, the chapter headings that you get in the New Testament, those are just, you know, translation committees threw those in, kind of a way to break things off for us. The superscriptions at the top of the Psalms are part of the inspired word of God. And so in Psalm 63, the superscription says a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And commentators believe that what that's referring to is Psalm t- or 1 Samuel 23, when David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Psalm 63 begins like this, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You've heard this psalm before. Maybe you've memorized it, but now you've got some context. David's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. And this is where David's heart is. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. David's heart, even as he's on the run, is set upon God. He is worshiping God. When you are in conflict with another person, when you're in the heat of conflict, it's someone that you know, it's someone that you love, either you have hurt them and you need to quit the peace breaking and get on top of conflict, or you are the one who has been hurt and you know the only way to deal with this conflict is by making the first move. Where's your heart in those moments? Is it worshiping God? David's was. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for lack of having you. David's heart was set on God. That's Psalm 63. And then Psalm 57, the superscription of Psalm 57, get this, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, this could be 1 Samuel 24. It also happens again in 1 Samuel 26. So it could be there as well. But I don't know, man. I can picture David, after this confrontation with Saul, perhaps saying, guys, I just got to (laughs) write. Lord's laid something on my heart. I got to get it down. Or maybe even he's in the cave hiding. We don't know how long his scouts had told him, Saul's coming with 3,000 men. Let's go hide in the cave. And maybe David's got some time to either write or kind of recite in his head what will ultimately become Psalm 57. I don't know. Bottom line is, this is what David is writing or meditating on as events are unfolded or soon thereafter. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Remember God had said through Samuel, David will be king. Saul's still on the throne. He won't let go. David is praying. I know that God's going to fulfill his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. There will be justice here. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David's confidence was in God. 
the grace of God in calling David and making promises to David like we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but that intimate relationship that existed between David and God bore fruit at the horizontal level when it came to David's conflict with Saul. Do you see that the key to dealing with whatever horizontal conflict you're dealing with right now is resting in the steadfast love of God, of making him your pursuit, not winning, not running, but resting in the grace of God? Do you see that the only way for there to be peace between people is for there first to be peace between people and God? And David reminds us from these psalms that, by the way, were given to us as our prayer book as well. But even in the heat of conflict, there can be peace because of what God has done. Ultimately, we see in Christ. How is it that we stay on top of conflict? What will bring this change in your heart? It is only seeing what Jesus did to reconcile you to God. Did Jesus have opportunity to be a peace breaker? Oh yeah, he could have called down thousands of angels from heaven. He did not revile when reviled. Jesus could have been a peace faker. He could have turned away from Jerusalem, but his face was resolutely set toward the cross. In order to reconcile you, though an enemy, to God, Jesus pursued peace, though it cost him his very life. This is the gospel when it comes to conflict resolution. It is God's grace in Christ to reconcile you to himself. It is dwelling upon, meditating on, resting in passages like Psalm 63. Passages like Psalm 57, recognizing that in David, for instance, we see an example of one who is trusted in the steadfast love of God, and then looking not ultimately to David, but to Jesus as the one who rested himself in the love of his Father in order to reconcile you to him. This is our hope for peace. So as we head into a few weeks here of very practical 4G type of stuff, Remember that the key to staying on top of conflict is not first going high, but first going low. To first looking first to the way in which Jesus won the war for your heart that you might forever trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you again. We pray that you would help us to rest in the truth that you, O God, through any conflict that we are in, are with us. Lord, there are some of us here who need to humble ourselves because we have been the peace breaker or we have been the ones who have initiated and caused hurt to someone else and we're trying to escape it and pretend we didn't do anything wrong. Lord, would you bring conviction of sin and then a, a courage to stay on top of conflict by looking first and foremost to your grace toward us, undeserved favor. Lord, for those of us who have been hurt and are tempted to either strike back as peace breakers or to run away, oh Lord, would you help us to move toward this other person, recognizing that in Christ you move toward us in order for there to be peace. Lord, help us to believe that on the other side 
of conflict, there is an opportunity to experience a greater depth of what it means to be reconciled to you as we are reconciled to one another. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.